here's a phrase. It's five words, right? I bet that everyone can guess the phrase, taking four of the words away, just giving you one word. Okay, you ready? Here you go. I, I bet everybody knows. I bet everybody has said it at one time or another. Houston, we have a problem. Uh, famous words. Uh, I know I've said it a number of times when I've had a problem. I've said, Houston, we have a problem. Those, those words were, were said uh, 42 years ago, happened to be 1970, the same year Kathy and I got married, and our anniversary is coming up this week. Congratulations, sweetheart. You, you chose the right person. <laughs> Amen. 42 years. Can't believe it's 42 years. But anyway, uh, those famous words were spoken uh, over 200,000 miles from earth at a speed of 21,000 miles an hour. It was spoken by Apollo 13, those that were in the craft of Apollo 13. They said, they said, Houston, we have a problem. And I don't know if you know what the response was. I think it was about six words. Uh, and the response was, this is Houston. Say again, please. Houston, we, we have a problem. The two main electrical circuits that control the craft are not working. We've lost power. That became one of the most epic moments in flight or our quest for uh, space, the final frontier. It, it became uh, a real issue of uh, tense concern for the nation at, at the time. And I know some of you weren't born, but uh, 42 years ago, one reporter uh, said, that it was the most public emergency and the most dramatic attempted rescue in the history of space exploration. Over 200,000 miles from planet Earth, traveling at 21,000 miles an hour. On the sixth day of the ill-fated mission of Apollo 13, in an attempt to get back home, the astronauts needed to make a very critical course correction. If they failed, if they, if they missed even slightly, they would burn up in reentry or they would miss reentry altogether and just be lost in space. To conserve power, they shut down the onboard computer that steered the craft. The three men crew had to conduct a 39 second engine burn of their main engines to, to make this course correction with no computer to guide them. They needed to figure out a way how they could, how they could steer the craft and uh, do it successfully. Uh, then astronaut Jim Lovell figured out that if he could have a fixed point in space through this tiny little window that they had, he could steer the, steer the craft manually. And that focal point turned out to be their destination, planet Earth. And so for 39 agonizing seconds, Lovell focused on keeping the Earth in view and uh, steered the craft manually, saving himself and his crew from disaster, his, their family, the, the, their space program, and the nation. I bring that up to say this, that every time we gather together corporately, every time we open up the Word of God, what, what we are doing is fixing a focal point on our final destination. Our final destination comes to us through this tiny little window God's provided for us of the revelation of his word. And, and Jesus is the focal point of that revelation. Their story became one of the most public stories of rescue, but our story of rescue 
is just as critical and just as important, and maybe even more so because we're not talking about merely saving natural lives or, or mortal lives, but we're talking about eternal life. In our community group uh, this past week, uh, at the end of the meeting, we were kind of talking about, remember Maria, we are talking about kitchens, and Kathy and I are in the process of redoing uh, our kitchen, or making plans to redo our kitchen, and we were talking about uh, granite and marble counters, and, and Kathy was saying that, that we both love the look of marble, but, but marble is very impractical to go with for, for counters because it, it's too soft of a material. It, it'll scratch and etch. And, and uh, so we were talking about granite. And, and, and yet, I, so I told this story, right, uh, about this, this huge, you know, slab of marble that Michelangelo took. Though it was, it was cracked and though it was flawed, he took this, this piece of marble and he, over four years, crafted what is known as the David, uh, this incredible live-like statue of the biblical person that we know to be David, the king of Israel. And uh, Frank wasn't very impressed with, with my story because he said, but in the end, he lost all of his marbles. <laughs> so that's, thanks, Frank, for, for that. That's, I didn't know that. I didn't know he lost all his marbles. But I got to tell you this, that, that, that the God whom we serve is committed to taking flawed, cracked, and corrupted men and women and working a work of, of grace upon us. The Bible says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, that we're God's workmanship, and that God has, has taken the, the flaws and the cracks and, and, and on all of the corruption that, that we once were, and he is transforming us, and he's changing us. You see, what I want you to know is that we need to keep our eyes on the final destination, and our final destination isn't a place. It's not even heaven. Our final destination is a person. God is committed to conforming us to the image of God's Son. So that's why I want to talk to you about having a heart after God. David is the one who is first called in Scripture, the man after God's own heart. And we're going to look at a couple of places. First, in the New Testament, we all know about David's flaws and faults, and they're right, right there for everybody to, to read. We, we know probably more about David than we know about any other individual because of maybe the Psalms and, and just the unveiling of his heart. And, 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 and plus, two books were written really about, about David. And we're going to just take a look. We're going to go a little bit deeper you know, over the next couple of weeks, today I want to just kind of lay a foundation that we understand what does it mean to have a heart after God. In this portion of Scripture, uh, Acts chapter 13, I want you to notice something this morning. I didn't plan this. This is just, 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 it just happened. Each of the chapters that we're going to be looking at is, is chapter 13. Uh, Apollo 13, Acts chapter 13. So let me just give you a little bit of background. It's the first missionary journey of uh, the church. The apostle uh, Paul and, and uh, Barnabas are, are speaking to both Jews and Gentiles, and, and Paul is kind of laying a foundation of a little bit of Israel's history and the wilderness crossing, and, and, and you know, just to catch you up on that. So in verse 20, he says this, after this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Now, let me just stop here for a minute. The, the judges were uh, literally, they were saviors that God raised up when it was necessary 
when the people found themselves being oppressed and being vexed by, by, the, by the neighboring nations and being, being uh, put into bondage, God would in his grace raise up these saviors or these judges or deliverers and they would rescue the people and protect the people and they would, they would become a blessing to the people. And then it says, but then until the time of Samuel the prophet and God began to do a new thing it, and, and the focus of his leadership then became prophetic. That God wanted his people to become a prophetic people and, and things were good under the reign of Samuel but it says this in verse 21, then the people asked for a king. And almost like childish peevishness, the children of Israel wanting to be like the other nations, what were really rejecting the theocracy or the, the rule of God that was over them. They were not only rejecting Samuel, but they were rejecting the God who raised up Samuel to be the leader and was wanting to do a new thing. It says this in verse 21, Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. One of the most amazing things about that one verse is that, is that, Samuel, that, that Saul was a king for the period of 40 years. Now, now, we get an insight into God's heart and his attitude years later from the prophet uh, Hosea. And, and this is what Hosea says, you see, because Saul proved to become a disaster. I mean, he was a train wreck waiting to happen. And God gives us this insight. Just listen to this verse. It says, in my anger, I gave you a king, and in my wrath, I took him away. And one of the problems of, of Saul, because the people demanded a king, it was before the time. It was before God's appointed time to give them a king. And so God gave them what they asked for. Be careful, you know, what you ask for. You know, you ever hear that, that saying? Be careful what you ask for. They asked for a king to be like the other nations, and God gave them a king like the other nations. It says in verse 22, that after removing Saul, he made David their king. And this is Paul, the apostle in the New Testament. You know, aren't you glad that when, that when God brings us into a relationship, our sins and our iniquities, he remembers no more. He casts our sins as far as the east is from the west. In the New Testament, all we have of the record of, of someone like David is that he was a man after God's heart. Listen to what it says. It says, he made David their king, and he testified concerning him, I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. Listen, folks, David was by no means perfect or flawless. He was filled with flaws, but God found in David a man that he could work with, that he could shape, that he could mold, that he could craft, like Michelangelo, that he could take the chisel in the rough areas of his life and to change him into the man who would become the man after God's own heart. Israel's king, first king, was such a disaster. What a tragic figure Saul was as he spiraled literally out of control. Maybe one of the problems with Saul was that he was made king way before he was prepared to become king. And one of the worst things that you can do is to promote someone to a place of leadership before they're ready, before the time. Israel's king, you know, just spiraled out of control. There's, there, there's a memorable line at the end of the original King Kong movie. Some of you older folks like me remember 
the original King Kong movie, at the end of the movie, you know, after the planes have successfully shot Kong down and he goes tumbling off of the Empire State and he's laid out flat there, you know, and people are looking on, right? The great line is this, that the, uh, one of the lead characters in the, in the movie says, it wasn't the planes that killed Kong. It was beauty that killed the beast. And they all say, ooh, beauty killed the beast, you know? And, and, and the question is, really, what was the downfall? What, what dis- it wasn't the Philistines. It wasn't the Amorites that, that brought Saul down. It wasn't the enemy from without. It was the enemy from within that brought Saul down. Saul, Saul struggled with pride. And, and, and the funny thing is, is that, is that he was absolutely insecure and jealous. But yet he was filled with pride. And it's kind of an ironic situation. But you know, as long as we struggle with areas like this in our life, if we have pride in in areas of jealousy and areas of insecurity, that will prevent us from being able to fully put our trust and our confidence in God. It will work as a wall against us. And the reason is simple, because God resists the proud. It's like an invisible force shield, you know? Talking about Star Trek. It's like an invisible force shield. God resists the proud, but the Bible says that he gives grace unto the humble. Therefore, the Bible encourages us to humble ourselves underneath the mighty hand of God so that in due time, God will keep us from falling. He will, he will lift us up. In a strange way, Saul was, was kind of impressed with himself. And one of the reasons for that being is that he was head and shoulders taller than everyone else in Israel. I mean, he was a giant of a man. And I think that we could probably look at Saul and say he probably would have been the poster boy for somebody who trusted in himself, who leaned upon the arm of his own flesh. So we pick up in the story uh, from 1 Samuel chapter 13 in just a moment. But But let me just give you a little bit of a background. 3,000 chariots from the Philistines, right? They come with 3,000 chariots. There's two riders in each chariot. Footmen, foot soldiers that the Bible says could not be numbered. And for that reason, when Israel, the army, saw these that were coming after them, they all ran, trembled with fear. They hid themselves in caves and in rocks and in holes and, you know, wherever they could hide, you know. And, 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 And this was the test for for the nation, because they wanted a king after the other nations. God was testing their hearts to show them what was in their hearts. Samuel, the prophet, said, wait for me at Gilgal, and there I will come, and I will, I will offer sacrifice to the Lord. And when I do, I will seek God's favor, and he will act for us, and he will fight for us as he's done on other times. But Saul, being impatient, couldn't wait and began to offer sacrifices to the Lord, which was unlawful for him to do. He was not a priest. So we pick up then in verse 13, 1 Samuel 13. Just as he finished making the offering, just as he finished the sacrifice, Samuel arrived, you know, caught red-handed. And Saul went out to greet him. Samuel says, what have you done? Saul replied, When I saw that the men were scattering and that you didn't come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me in Gilgal and I've not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer a burnt offering. I felt compelled. And and look at all the reasons that he gave. 
the reasons why I felt compelled to do these things because you didn't come at the set time, because the Philistines get, what is he doing? One thing a leader should never do is, that is, is to make excuses and to pass the blame upon others. You know, I think things would have turned out differently if Saul would have just simply said, you know what, I blew it. I messed up real big. But instead, you know, here's an example of political spin as he's spinning the story. And it's, and it's really everybody else's fault. It's the Philistines' fault. It's your fault, Samuel. You didn't come on time according to the set time. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the Israelites who ran away, but it's not my fault, right? I felt compelled. Verse 13 says, you acted foolishly. Samuel said, you've not kept the command of the Lord your God that he gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and has appointed him a leader of his people because you have not kept the command of the Lord. How patient God is, not willing that men should perish, but that men should come to the knowledge of repentance. This was the time that that God first said, I sought for a man who would be after my own heart. God wanting to take a man and to shape him and to mold him and to chisel him and to create in him a man after his own heart. Why was David so unique? I mean, think about that. Why was David so blessed, so unique, you know? Uh, The answer's got to be, it was all grace. It was grace that found David. All of us, like David, are flawed and imperfect, apart from grace, in the same way that we could say today that I love God because he first loved me, that we could say that if we will ever become men and women after God's heart, it's only because God's heart first came after us and sought us and found us. Last week, the worship team, I asked them to, to close in a, in, in a song that spoke about the unrelenting heart of God, that God is unyielding and he's unrelenting in his pursuit of us. To do what? The line says in the song that we sing, until, until my heart is yours. God, you are so unrelenting. You, you will not give up until you make my heart yours. Amazing, isn't it, that God is so stubborn to make us the objects of his affection. And scripture reveals the ravished heart of God. Read the Song of Solomon sometimes. It's an amazing song about the love that the Father has for us and that, and that he has sent his son for this very purpose. We love him because he first loved us. We become seekers of God because he first sought us. He left. He always is the one to, do, to make the initiation. He leaves the 90 and 9 in search for the one, one out of 100. And he, and, he, and, he, and he searches for us like, like the woman who searched through the house for that lost coin. And she turns it upside down until she finds it. And when she finds it, she rejoices and calls her neighbors together. And, and that's a picture of the angels rejoicing when one lost sinner is found. It's a picture of the father's heart who runs and throws himself upon the neck of his son who was lost but now is found. God is the one who is constantly initiating the search for us to make us men and women who have hearts after him. Some of you guys might remember 
Uh, Neil Young, do you remember Neil Young, the artist? You know, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. That was back in my day. But, but he had a popular song, and it was called Heart of Gold. Uh, you remember, I mean, I hear that song even played today. It's like, you know, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years old, you know. And uh, you go into delis or, you know, go into a store and you hear the, the, the song played, Heart of Gold. You ever hear the song, Heart of Gold? You know, he, 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 it's a song about somebody who was searching. He says, I, I've been a miner for a heart of gold. A miner, that's a great visual. He, he's digging for, for a heart of gold. In fact, the, the, the lyric goes, that, that, that I've even crossed the oceans searching for a heart of gold. But he says, but I'm getting old. In other words, the artist is saying that, that, that it's hard to find a heart of gold. And here's the amazing thing is that God would search for, for hearts that would become hearts of gold, hearts after his own heart. The amazing thing is, and the question is, what, is, what does it mean to have a heart after God? What does it mean to have a heart after God? Can, can I just say it in the most simplest terms for this morning's introduction? To have a heart after God is to, have, is to love what God loves, is to care about what God cares about, and it really is to, to, to kind of be the reflection of God's heart. In, in the way that the moon has no light or glory of its own, but it reflects the light and the glory of the sun. So in our juxtaposition to God, in our relationship to God, we're to reflect the heart of God in this world. The Lord gave Saul opportunity after opportunity to, to change, to repent, but he blew it big time. So in, in chapter 15, now, it, it seems like God gave him just even one more chance, you know, at, at being king. And uh, he gave him this instruction, and it may sound a little weird to us this morning, you know, but, but this is the instruction that the Lord gave. He said, we want, I want you to go and I want you to declare war against Amalek. I want you to go and I want you to wipe out Amalek, leave none alive. I want you to kill every, every last person of Amalek and even their cattle spare not and you know somebody I could I could I could hear somebody's thoughts saying you know that's what I don't like about the Old Testament there's you know there seems like to be such a parody between the God of the Old Testament and the God who is loving in the New Testament and, and really there is no difference God is the same yesterday today and forever and 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 here's the thing is that is that what I want you to know is that God wanted Saul to be a different kind of king than he was. See, th- th- this was not a war about, about wealth or about power or about uh, resources. This was a, b- a war about justice. You see, the, the Amorites were, were brutal and violent and wicked people in, in, in the same way that it was right to, to war against the Nazis you know, in World War II, it was right to war against that fascism. So God was saying, I want to put an end to their brutality and to, and to their, their, their heinous crimes that they've committed. And so I'm raising you up. But, but here's the thing. You're not to benefit from this war. You're not to take their plunder. You're not to take uh, any prisoners alive. And one of the reasons for that being is because Prisoners were either taken for the purpose of enslaving them or for ransoming them. And God was saying, this is not a war about, about wealth and power and gain for you. This is a war about justice. Because God's heart is about justice. But here's the problem. Saul disobeyed 
the Lord. He kept Agar, the king, alive, and he kept the sheep. And when Samuel comes on the scene, Saul says, I've done the will of the Lord. And he says, then, then what's the, the, the sound of the bleeding of the sheep that I hear? And uh, at that moment, the kingdom was rent from Saul because God wanted, listen, God wanted a servant leader whose heart was after his heart. God, God wanted the kind of a king, the kind of a leader that their, their subjects would be so loyal that they would follow him even to death because they knew that their king was willing to die for them. And you know, we've got to look to the greater. David, the true king after God's own heart. The Lord Jesus, who waged the war against the powers of darkness for the purpose of justice. And at the cross, we see one of the greatest demonstrations of justice, but at the cross, we also see one of the greatest displays of love and mercy. In the demonstration of Calvary, there is, there is such an amazing justice that is taking place. The righteousness of God is being revealed, as well as the wrath of God is being revealed. But in the one person, Jesus, listen to me, in the one person, Jesus, we have the man, the true king after God's own heart. But in the one person, Jesus, we also have the God-man who is after men's hearts. In Jesus, we have the one who bridges the gap, who is qualified to, to be that bridge because he's fully God, but he's also fully man. And he's after, he's after the heart of God, but he's also after the hearts of men. This last failure on the part of Saul was like the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. And so God said to Samuel, I want you to go to Jesse's house and there, there I want you to appoint, I want you, I, I've chosen one of Jesse's sons to reign in Saul's stead. Now Jesse had 10 children. Eight of them were boys, two of them were girls. And when Saul went to Jesse's house, Jesse made his firstborn son pass before him. And, and he was a big guy. He was tall, handsome. And Samuel said, surely the Lord's anointed stands before us. And the Lord said, don't make the same mistake you did with Saul. For the Lord doesn't look upon the outward appearance as man sees, but God looks upon the heart. It's this issue with the heart that's so important to God. Seeing I've rejected him. And so the, the second son and the third son and the fourth son, until, until they all passed before Samuel. And, and, and Samuel is kind of thinking, did I get this wrong, God? Did I not hear from you? And he says to Jesse, are these all your sons? And he said, well, th there's, there's Davy. He's, he's little Davy, he, but he's out there taking care of the sheep. He wasn't even considered. He was so irrelevant, insignificant, that he wasn't invited to stand before the prophet. So Samuel says, go bring him in and we'll not sit down until he comes in. And when he comes in, the Lord says, that's the one, you anoint him. And there the Bible says that the, Samuel anointed David there and the Spirit of God came upon him from that day forward. Here's the thing. When Saul was anointed to become king, he became king immediately, put a crown on his head. When David was anointed to become king, he went back to taking care of the sheep. 
He went back to doing his chores in the house. He's probably about 15 years old at the time, maybe 16 years of age. What an encouraging thing that is for any young person to know that God doesn't disqualify you because of your age. God is looking for character. He's looking for hearts that will be completely his. I told the guys a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about David, and I said if David had been had been made king immediately upon that anointing, if he immediately ascended to the throne, there wouldn't have been a crown big enough found in Israel to fit on his swollen, puffed-up head. But over the next period of years, first of all, David had to be faithful in small things, and he was faithful in caring for his father's sheep. And he was faithful in the experiences that David had. Remember, he talks about them having... having defended the sheep against the lion and bear. And, and the rough places over the next 20 years, the sufferings that David experienced over the next 20 years before he actually took the throne really prepared David to be one of the greatest kings that Israel ever had. And I want you to know that God, you know, Michelangelo may take four years to build his David, but God takes a lifetime to build his men and women who are after his heart. And God is faithful to complete that good work that he's begun in you. But you know what's so amazing to me? When I think about about the greater David, when I think about the the true king after after God's heart, I think about Jesus. And and you remember at the beginning of his ministry, before he actually starts his ministry, when he's baptized by John and, and God breaks the silence of heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Remember that? Father says, this is my son, my beloved. I am well pleased with him. This is before Jesus preached the sermon. It's before Jesus healed one sick person, before Jesus cast out demons, before he walked on water, before before he changed water into wine, before he, he multiplied loaves and fishes. The father said, I am pleased with him. Why? Because God is more concerned with the character of heart, and he sees in his son one whose, whose character was matchless. There is none like him. I heard, I heard those echoes in, in our prayer time before service to, this morning by, by some of the people who were praying. There is none like Jesus. He is matchless in his perfection. He, he is holy, separate from sinners, and yet he's come alongside of us to become the friend of sinners, the man after God's own heart. But, but listen, What's so amazing then is because he is so perfect, his perfection is transferred to us. And we are now highly favored in the beloved. We are now accepted in Christ as though we had achieved everything that Jesus achieved. I don't have to preach a great sermon. I don't have to walk on water. I don't have to multiply loaves of Panera bread. I don't have to multiply any. I don't have to do any of those things to be fully accepted and pleasing unto God. That God looks at me and looks at you through the lens of his son, through the windows of the wounds of Jesus. And he says, you and, and, and I, we are, we are beloved because of Jesus. His achievements are transferred to us the righteousness of the king after God's own heart is attributed to us and given to us as the gift of righteousness. No, we, we rest and we joy in his 
in his perfection, in his accomplishments. But God is at work, and he has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. And this is the work that God is doing. He is daily conforming us. He's shaping us. He's chiseling. He's molding. He's, he's perfecting us so that you and I will one day, the final destination will be conformity to the image of God's son. And this is all grace, beloved. This is not, not by works of righteousness that we have done. He sent the spirit of his son in our hearts to conform us and change us and shape us from the inside out. This is not, this is not religion, which is outside stuff. This is change that, that happens, transformation that happens from the inside out. What I want you to take away this morning is simply this, that God is faithful. If he's begun a good work in you, he will complete that work in the day of Christ because, because the true king after God's heart is also after your heart. The true king after God's heart is after your heart. He won't relent until he has it all, until you say, my heart is yours. Listen to what God says as the promise so that this is not, this is not your burden. This is God's burden to bring about transformation. Ezekiel eleven nineteen says this, I will give them an undivided heart and I will put a new spirit in them and I will remove from them their heart of stone and I will give them a heart of flesh. That is a heart that's pliable, that's, that's soft, that's moldable, that's, that's shapeable. God says, I will give them that kind of a heart and that is the gift that God has given to us. Let's all pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the, the grace of God that this is your initiation that you have sought for a people, men and women in this place who would become men and women after the heart of God. And I pray that in this series, Lord God, that we've laid a foundation for this morning that indeed, Lord God, something wonderful will happen, a transformation. We will be more like Jesus reflecting the glory of our Savior, reflecting the nature of his heart, the things that are important to him, the things that, are, the things that, that he cares about, the, 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 the priorities of the heart of God would be reflected in a people that carry about them the fragrance and the aroma of Christ. I pray, Father God, that, that this would be our passion this morning. As we, as we worship this morning, I've, I've asked the worship team to sing that song again, that, that, that we would understand, God, this is what you're looking for. You're looking for my heart to be surrendered to your heart. You're looking for hearts in this place this morning. And I pray today, Father, that if there's any heart here today that has not been completely made yours, that by the end of this service, by the end of this song, oh God, that you would heal hearts, that you would set hearts free, that you would implant new hearts, take out the hearts of stone and give us, as the scripture says, a heart of flesh. Can we all stand together and worship him one more time? this morning.